Old Peabody Pew, Chapter 5 At this precise moment, Justin Peabody was eating his own beans and brown bread, articles of diet of which his Detroit landlady was lamentably ignorant, at the new tavern not far from the meeting house. It would not be fair to him to say that Mrs. Burbank's letter had brought him back to Edgewood, but it had certainly accelerated his steps. For the first six years after Justin Peabody left home, he had drifted about from place to place, saving every possible dollar of his uncertain earnings in the conscious hope that he could go back to New England and ask Nancy Wentworth to marry him. The West was prosperous and progressive, but how he yearned in idle moments for the grimmer and more sterile soil that had given him birth. Then came what seemed to him a brilliant chance for a lucky turn of his savings, and he invested them in an enterprise which, wonderfully as it promised, failed within six months and left him penniless. At that moment he definitely gave up all hope, and for the next few years he put Nancy as far as possible out of his mind. In the full belief that he was acting an honorable part and refusing to drag her into his tangled and fruitless way of life. If she ever did care for him, and he could not be sure, she was always so shy, she must have outgrown the feeling long since and be living happily, or at least contentedly, in her own way. He was glad in spite of himself when he heard that she had never married, but at least he hadn't it on his conscience that he had kept her single. On the 17th of December, Justin, his business day over, was walking toward the dreary house in which he ate and slept. As he turned the corner, he heard one woman saying to another, as they watched a man stumbling sorrowfully down the street, going home will be the worst of all for him, to find nobody there. That was what going home had meant for him these ten years, but he afterward felt it strange that this thought should have struck him so forcibly on that particular day. Entering the boarding house, he found Mrs. Burbank's letter with its Edgewood postmark on the hall table and took it up to his room. He kept a little fire in the airtight stove, watching the flame creep from shavings to kindlings, from kindlings to small pine, and from small pine to the round hardwood sticks. Then, when the result seemed certain, he closed the stove door and sat down to read the letter. Whereupon all manner of strange things happened in his head and heart and fled as he sat there alone, his hands in his pockets, his feet braced against the legs of the stove. It was a cold winter night, and the snow and sleet beat against the windows. He looked about the ugly room, at the washstand with its square of oilcloth in front, and its detestable bowl and pitcher at the rigors of his white iron bedstead. With the valley in the middle of the lumpy mattress and the darns in the rumpled pillowcase, at the doll photographs of the landlady's husband and children enshrined on the mantel shelf, looked at the desolation surrounding him until his soul sickened and cried out like a child's for something more like home. It was as if a spring thaw had melted his ice-bound heart, and on the crest of a wave it was drifting out into the milder waters of some unknown sea. He could have laid his head in the kind lap of a woman and cried, Comfort me, give me companionship, or I die. The wind howled in the chimney and rattled the loose window sashes. The snow, freezing as it fell, dashed against the glass with hard, cutting little blows. At least that is the way in which the wind and snow flattered themselves. 
they were making existence disagreeable to Justin Peabody when he read the letter, but never were elements more mistaken. It was a June Sunday in the boarding house bedroom, and for that matter, it was not the boarding house bedroom at all. It was the old Orthodox church on Torrey Hill in Edgewood. The windows were wide open, and the smell of the purple clover and the humming of the bees were drifting into the sweet, wide spaces within. Justin was sitting in the end of the Peabody pew, and Nancy Wentworth was beside him. Nancy, cool and restful in her white dress, dark-haired Nancy under the shadow of her shirred muslin hat. Rise, my soul, and stretch thy wings, the, thy better portion trace. The melodeon gave the tune, and Nancy and he stood to sing, taking the book between them. His hand touched hers, and as the music of the hymn rose and fell, the future unrolled itself before his eyes, a future in which Nancy was his wedded wife, and the happy years stretched on and on in front of them until there was a row of little heads in the old Peabody pew, and mother and father could look proudly along the line at the young things they were bringing into the house of the Lord. The recalling of that vision worked like magic in Justin's blood. His soul rose and stretched its wings and traced its better portion vividly as he sprang to his feet and walked up and down the bedroom floor. He would get a few days' leave and go back to Edgewood for Christmas to join with all the old neighbors in the service at the meeting house. And in pursuance of this resolve, he shook his fist in the face of the landlady's husband on the mantelpiece and dared him to prevent. He had a salary of fifty dollars a month with some very slight prospect of an increase after January. He did not see how two persons could eat and drink and lodge and dress on it in Detroit, but he proposed to give Nancy Wentworth a refusal of that magnificent future, that brilliant and tempting offer. He had exactly one hundred dollars in the bank, and sixty or seven of seventy of them would be spent in the journeys, counting two happy, blessed fares back from Edgewood to Detroit, and if he paid only his own fare back, he would throw the price of the other into the pond behind the Wentworth house. He would drop another ten dollars into the plate on Christmas Day toward the repairs on the church. If he starved, he would do that. He was a failure. Everything his hand touched turned to naught. He looked himself full in the face, recognizing his weakness, and in this supremest moment of recognition, he was a stronger man than he had been an heir before. His drooping shoulders had straightened. The restless look had gone from his eyes. His somber face had something of repose in it, the repose of a settled purpose. He was a failure, but perhaps if he took the risks, and if Nancy would take them, but that was the trouble. Women were so unselfish, they were always willing to take risks, and one ought not to let them. Perhaps he might do better in trying to make a living for two than he had in working for himself alone. He would go home, tell Nancy that he was an unlucky good-for-naught, and ask her if she would try her hand at making him over. Thank you for listening to another episode of Acre Soft Story Classic. Thank you.